<laughs> okay, if everybody would like to open to Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do you not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Refer to things that all perish as they use, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll get into our uh, text for this evening. Father, thank you so much again for this time. Please um, just help us um, to recognize who you are. We've had long days, we've had long weeks, um, we have all sorts of uh, things going on personally and with our families. We've had um, hard days. We have homework. There's all sorts of things, Lord. Uh, and we know it's so easy to be distracted by those things. But uh, we just pray, Lord, in this moment uh, for the next uh, number of minutes, Lord, that we could focus on your word, that we could recognize our need, and that your Holy Spirit would uh, turn us towards you. You are the only uh, thing that could satisfy us. You are the only person in the world who understands us and understands how much we need you. Please help us to see that. Please, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just let us um, understand and marvel at how wonderful and beautiful and gracious and merciful you are to us, that our whole lives would be lived uh, in light of your matchless grace. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn over to Colossians 2. This is the last section of Colossians chapter 2 that we'll study, and then next week we have retreat, and the week after that, when we come back, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. So we're basically halfway through the book right now, so probably more than halfway through the series, because there's um, bigger sections that we'll cover at once, but uh, we're almost finished this chapter. So as we get into it, I want to tell you a bit of a ridiculous story, but hopefully it can kind of help set us up for uh, what's going on in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Imagine a traffic cop. Imagine a traffic cop sitting in his patrol car on the side of the 5 interstate freeway. Now, as he's sitting there, it's not a very busy evening. He's simply waiting for something to happen. He's waiting for uh, himself to be called to stop someone speeding. He's uh, running people's license plates. Um, he's waiting just in case there happens to be an accident that he needs to rush to the scene of. He's simply waiting there. And as he waits, he is facing the same direction that most of the cars are driving. I say most of them because as he's waiting, looking down at cars are passing by one side and passing into his vision, he notices up in the road that cars begin to swerve to the side of the road. And as he waits longer, wondering what's going on, he hears people honking. He even hears someone screaming. Uh, and all of a sudden, as the cars begin to part, he realizes that there is a car a couple miles in front of him going quite fast, driving down the wrong side of the road. 
And as he finally realizes in astonishment what is happening, he turns his signal on and starts following behind the car as it passes him, going the wrong side, going down the wrong side of the highway. Now, as he starts picking up speed and gaining distance, he starts thinking to himself, why on earth this person could be driving down the wrong side of the road? And as he approaches, he even thinks, there's no point me having my signals on. There's no point giving him noise to warn him that I'm a cop because if he's driving on this side of the road, he must be doing something criminal. There must be something crazy going on. But as he approaches the car, and the car gets within earshot of the siren and he sees his signals, he actually very calmly goes off to the side of the road. The cop is even more surprised and he parks behind him. He gets out in shock, shuts the door and walks up to the driver's side of the car. The man turns to him and he's quite fearful and the cop asks him, what on earth is going on? Why were you driving down the wrong side of the road? And the man looked out the window and he said, officer, I knew there was a problem. I was seeing cars on the other side of the road driving past me and I just couldn't understand because why is everyone on the wrong side of the road? And the man says, what? The cop tells the man, what are you talking about? You're the one on the wrong side of the road. And the man in utter shock looks at him and says, aren't we in England? And the cop says, what? And he says, aren't we in England? And he says, no, we're not in England. We're in America. He says, oh, I thought we were in England. That's why I was driving on the wrong side of the road. Now, obviously, there's only so many laughs because the story itself is kind of ridiculous, and I understand that. But imagine yourself, if you were actually in that situation, if you were the cop, and ask yourself, what does this guy need to hear? You'd have all sorts of anger probably in you telling you, why didn't you look and see the multiple U.S. license plates or even flags on the side of the road? Dude, why didn't you notice that everybody else was going the other way down the road except for you? Why didn't you notice all these things? But really, there's only one thing that guy needs to hear, and it's not stop it. What the guy needs to hear is that he's not in England. That guy needs to know what reality he's living in, what country he's in, and consequently, he's going to start learning which rules he follows and which rules he no longer follows because he's no longer in that country. As ridiculous as this situation is, it's a little bit similar to what's going on in Colossae. What's going on in Colossae as we close chapter two is that Paul is in serious surprise and bewilderment that Colossians are being tempted to follow rules prescribed by the false teachers. And as he closes out chapter two, there's one thing that Paul is going to try and argue into their minds. And the reality is he's not simply gonna tell them stop following those rules. He's gonna tell them it makes no sense to follow those rules because you don't live in the world where those rules applied. You are no longer living in a world dominated by rules that no longer apply to you because you live in a new spiritual reality. The spiritual reality that controls you is that you live with Christ. You have been freed from the old rules of the past and the old sin that conquered you and the old spiritual forces, as we'll see, that they were afraid of. None of those things apply because you live in a world controlled by Christ. Today, we don't necessarily have a straightforward proposition, uh, but what we do have is an argument that Paul is going to follow for four verses. So what we're going to do is the three points today are basically going to add to that 
argument, and you'll see how Paul is arguing to the Colossians, remember where you are, remember how that changes your life, and remember why that is so significant. That is really how Paul is going to say this argument. And it starts in verse 20 with this simple thought. Everything starts with this fact that you have been freed in Christ. You have been freed in Christ. Now, Paul has been arguing for this idea that there's a new spiritual reality Christians live in from the start of the book, and all of it has to do with Christ. He began that thought really in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, when Paul explained, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Even though you still live in this same world, there's a new spiritual world, in a sense, that you live with. Because you have been saved by Christ, you live in the kingdom of God's beloved son. That is Christ. You live in Christ's kingdom. And Paul, as he has continued that train of thought through Colossians, has explained how you got to that kingdom. How you came into that kingdom was also through Christ. And really, the section that explains that the clearest is Colossians 2, 11 to 15. When we did Colossians 2, 11 to 15, Paul had this amazing argument for how it was that Christ took you from the world and united him with himself, and he accomplished all of that through the cross. Colossians 2, 11, Paul explained that you have been circumcised by Christ. You have had this spiritual surgery on your heart, removing sin from you. And that happened because Colossians 2, 12, you were buried with him, and you were raised with him. And as a result of that, he says in Colossians 2.13, you have been made alive together with him. Christ is the one who has taken you out of the world and put, him, put you in his own kingdom. And that is the thought in Paul's mind as he jumps into Colossians 2.20 when he begins by saying, you died with Christ. With Christ, you have died. Now, you might note at the beginning there, it says, if, and Paul isn't talking about something that he's unsure of. When we use if, it's usually something we're unsure of. But this is actually a particle in the Greek that's explaining he's about to begin an argument. And really, the way you can think about it is, since with Christ you have died. Since with Christ you have died. This is the beginning of an argument. And now, when we see death of Christ... Throughout the Bible, that means all sorts of things, and it usually means all of them together. It means we have a new life in Christ, like we saw in Colossians 2. It means we're free from sin. It means we have joy and hope and peace and comfort. It means we're living in a new world with a perfect and eternal perspective through God's word provided for us. But because Paul is thinking of these people in Colossae, and he knows who they are, he knows what they fear, he knows what they need to hear because of their circumstances— Paul gets more specific. He doesn't just say, since you died with Christ. He says this, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. And that's important. With Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. You might remember this from Colossians chapter 2, 8. And we talked a little bit about that world. Basically, if you were a person living in Colossae, you would be someone who most likely were concerned with spiritual forces. As you lived your daily life and as you talked to the regular friends you had and as you did things in the marketplace, all sorts of things would remind you of a supernatural reality. Whether you're talking about angels or demons or other spirits that existed, everybody kind of acknowledged 
that there was a supernatural reality, that there was a spiritual world that very much existed. And as strange as that might seem to us, and as wrong, really, as it would seem to us, there's something important for us to recognize that there is an element of that that is true. We do live in a spiritual world, and there is a spiritual battle that is being fought now. Pastor Josh has been talking about that on Sundays, and as he talks to the temptation of Christ, that is going to be something that keeps coming up. There is a cosmic battle going on between God and every other spiritual force against him under, under Satan. But the reality is for Christians, they are not supposed to fear that world. There is nothing in that spiritual world that they are supposed to be afraid of because through the death of Christ, you have been freed from that world and you've been united with Christ. No other power can harm you. And Paul explained at the very end of Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Remember, he said, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In this spiritual battle through the cross, Christ has already defeated all of those enemies, and it is only a matter of time before his people see him in his full glory because he has triumphed over them. And so the first thing that Christians need to recognize is that you have been freed in Christ. But Paul is going to expand on that argument because he cares about the Colossians and he cares about the temptations that are coming up against them. So he continues that argument by adding, you are freed in Christ from this world. That's the second part of his argument. You are freed in Christ from this world. He has gone from the ultimate reality of the spiritual world down to the present daily lives of the Colossians. He knows that as they live their daily lives, they are struggling with these spiritual pressures and sorts of acts that they need to do to deal with those spiritual forces. And Paul has a question for them in Colossians chapter 2.20, and it's simply this, why? Why? In the same way that traffic cop asked that guy, why? Are you living inconsistently with the world you live in? Paul asks the people in Colossae, why are you living inconsistently with the spiritual reality that Christ has brought to you? You live in the kingdom of Christ, and therefore why, he says in 2.20, are you still acting like you're alive in this world? And Paul explains to them the kind of behavior that he sees that makes him understand they're being tempted to be inconsistent with their new spiritual life. He says, you submit to regulations. You submit to regulations. He explains as he goes that these regulations in 221 are these. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The reality for the Colossians is that they were always tempted to live in two worlds. They recognized that Christ was king, but they couldn't connect the dots about how that affected their spiritual lives. It could have been that that was just a fact that they kind of forgot about in their daily lives. It could have been that they really believed that was true, but they didn't understand that Christ was infinitely more powerful than the spiritual forces. But whatever it was, false teachers were coming to them and telling them, you need to deal with these spiritual forces. You need to do this practice, or as we see here, you need to not do certain practices to make sure that those spiritual forces are satisfied or appeased or placated. You need to do something so they're not mad at you anymore, so they can't affect your daily life. And Paul simply asks, why? Why do you submit to those regulations? That word submit is the idea of doing something because someone's ruling over you. 
It's the perfect word for this situation. It's like someone has a foot on your head or they have a knife against your throat. And because you feel that pressure, you only do what the person having force over you tells you what to do. And you do it because you're scared that they could hurt you. And Paul's question is, why do you think that they have any influence or pressure over your lives? You have pledged allegiance to Christ, and that is more than enough to deal with any other force that could pressure you. Now that is where it gets a little interesting for us, because if we're going to be honest, that seems very different from our world now. If I talk to most of you, I don't think most of you would be worried about demonic activity or small angels or fairies or spirits or anything like that. I think most of you guys would not be worried about those things influencing your life because our culture is incredibly different. But this is how I think we get from their world to our world. Think if you were a Colossian, what's going on in your heart that would make those things tempting? What is going on inside that is making those outside things so worrying? And really, that's something that they were dealing with that we deal with every day too, and it's fear. There was fear. The thing that's really going on here is a fear of something outside of themselves that could affect them spiritually or physically or whatever. It is fear. And I think there's at least two different kinds of fear that are super applicational for us. And we can see how this text was written for the Colossians, but is totally written for us today. This is the first fear, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of uncertainty. The Colossians could give in to the false teachers because the false teachers were selling them a fear of what might happen tomorrow. They were people who needed to prepare sacrifices, prepare spiritual practices because they were worried about their futures. They adopted responsibilities that could have seemed good on the outside, but they were wrong because they were motivated by anxiety and, most importantly, a desire to be in control of their own lives. And how similar is that to us today? We still feel uncertainty, and we still feel it for many of the wrong reasons, mainly because we want to be in control. We want to look at the future and we want to prepare a 10 or 20 or 30 step plan to make sure the future ends up exactly the way we want it. Now this is not at all a sermon against stewardship or preparation or responsibility, but this is about fear. What is the thing that motivates you to try and plan? It's a really interesting illustration of someone who explained how fear affected her life. Um, her husband was a pastor and this woman wanted to talk to her husband because he went away to a Christian conference in Turkey. And at that period, Syria was a threat to Turkey. And so she was already very anxious when he left for this conference about how he would, uh, how he would be. She was worried about his safety. And so because of that, they set up Zoom calls or uh, FaceTime calls every single day. And one day, her husband didn't call on time. And minutes went by, and hours went by, and the longer time went by, the fear she already had began to grow and grow and grow and manifest itself in all sorts of questions. What if something happened to him? Turned into, what if he never comes back? Turned into, what are we going to do to provide for our kids? Turned into, what are we going to do for our house? And by the time her husband actually called her, she had already decided where to move her family and how much her house was going to sell for. And the point that she had in that reality was really this. 
She's, this is a quote directly from her. When fear seizes you, all your ability to think rationally evaporates. Life becomes overwhelming. And get this, the promises of God are thrown out the window. Her point was that fear creates irrationality. And I think that is so similar to what's going on in Colossae. They should understand all the promises they have in Christ. But because of this fear, this fear that they shouldn't even have of forces that can't affect them anymore, that fear drove them to irrationality. It turned them to try and deal with something totally irrational. I think there's at least one other fear, though, that hopefully is really helpful for us today also. And it's this, the fear of acceptance the fear of acceptance. The Colossians needed acceptance ultimately from these spiritual forces. And the really manipulative part of this was that they would never ever be able to give enough to actually be accepted by the false teachers. Every single day there was another sacrifice or another practice or something else. There was never enough they could do to be right before these spiritual beings. And that same attitude is totally something that I think all of us deal with today. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved. We want to be part of whatever community or club or even church that we can. And the more we get worried about that, I think that fear also breeds a kind of irrationality and we go to all the wrong places to find that acceptance. The more I hear from you guys about junior high and high school, the more I think it is totally exactly like when I was in junior high and high school. There is always the popular group who is always trying to be pleased and there's never enough to just be in the group permanently. There is always something to do or some attitude you have to have or some fashion or trend you need to follow to be able to get acceptance from them, and it's just never enough. Or on the flip side, if you are the popular kid, there is never enough people that will make you satisfied where you are. There is never enough people that can like you, that can actually complete you, that can actually make you happy. There always needs to be some other person or something else to actually bring acceptance for only a moment, and it's gone the next day. Even the way that our culture works right now is constantly creating and imposing worse and more brutal lies about what it should take to be accepted. They use body image against us. They use popular trends against us. They add new attitudes and new mindsets. And they constantly promote being relevant on social media. Ask yourself how many times you have got on your phone and checked how many likes and comments you have. And again, this is not an anti-social media platform message. This is about what drives you to find acceptance. What is the thing in you that is turning to things that will never give you enough satisfaction? Even with this whole cancel culture thing that has been talked about for so long this year, even people in the world are realizing that there is never enough they can do to not get canceled. This whole world is operating on the idea that we can keep changing morality, we can keep changing right and wrong, and one day we're gonna figure it out. And the more they try to recreate and recreate and recreate, more and more people's souls are being torn apart, including the people already in that system. This world is desperate for approval, and it's desperate for approval because we are too. Someone else that I was reading today pointed out this irony really beautifully. He said this, we crave approval from others and we fear rejection by others. 
And this means that on the one hand, we desperately want to be somebody, but on the other hand, we admit that we are dependent on others for the somebody that we want to be. We are trying to convince ourselves that we are okay without help from the outside, but ironically, all the time, we are seeking validation from others outside who are all trying to do the same thing. We are approval junkies. We are looking for acceptance. And part of that is part of being made in the image of God, but it has been so manipulated that we look for acceptance in all the wrong places. And Paul's response to that is to take the Colossians and by extension to take us and shake us and say, stop forgetting about Christ. Christ is here. Christ has accepted you. And there's nothing more that you could do to get his acceptance. It has all been given for you already through the cross. All that acceptance, that comfort, that fear of the future. You have no need to worry about those things because you have Christ. So look again at those things. Look again at those practices. Look again at those systems and see that they offer nothing remotely close to what Christ offers. Even a little bit sarcastically, Paul adds in verse 22, there are at least two things that should help you point out how obviously wrong these practices are. Number one, he says in Colossians 2.22, these practices refer to things that all perish as they're used. Paul wants you to notice those things pass away. Those things pass away. A commentator named Garland, he wrote something about this that was really amazing. He said, the false teachers offer only things that have to do with perishable things, and their rules only bind them more and more to this present evil age. But what Christ offers believers has to do with what's eternal, and he delivers them from the power of darkness. Therefore, they should ignore the objections of those whose religious concerns are all empty impulses with no eternal effects. Christ has given us good things now, but the best things point us to him in eternity. We're going to learn about that as we continue in chapter 3. But everything Christ offers is not just a greater relationship than this world has to offer, but a relationship that lasts infinitely longer than any relationship in this world. It's better, it's greater, it's purer, and it's eternal. And all of these practices prove that they are useless because you do them once and they fade away. They are so unlike our God. But he points out another thing and something we've already talked about, so I'll only mention it briefly. He says, those things are according to human precepts and teachings. Those things come from humans. We're never gonna find ultimate completeness or fulfillment by finding acceptance from other people because they're desperate for acceptance too. And we're never gonna be acceptable enough to each other we are messy people. We have messed things up. We have sin. Relationships are amazing, but they can't give us eternal purpose. Only an eternal relationship with God can. And God has offered that freely in Christ, and the world can't compete with that. This is what the psalmist says when he prays about this same reality in Psalm 102, verses 23 to 26. He says this, Oh my God, I say, Take me away, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. They will all wear out like a garment and you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. 
every problem that this world has is going to be gone one day. And it will only be Christ and those who are with Christ. And that is a glorious thing to think about. And it's a glorious reality we've been saved out of. And because he wants to make that even more clear, and because he wants to explain how the world is even more lacking than they already recognize, he expands on this thought. The last third point of his argument in verse 23 is this. You are freed in Christ from this world and the flesh. You are freed in Christ from this world and the flesh. That's the third part of his argument in verse 23. He says this. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, referring to the practices. Those are the things that have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul begins verse 23 by saying this, I understand that these practices seem legit. He says, I understand that there's something about their systems and their world that seems appealing. I get it. And really the reason is the false teachers who are selling that false spirituality, they seem to do a lot of things that Christians should do. They seem to exercise a lot of virtues that Christians should also exercise. They seem to be humble. They take their spiritual lives seriously. They are disciplined, no matter how weirdly that might see. If you remember asceticism, that extreme hurting of yourself to be close with God that we studied last time, it shows up again here. No matter how weird that seems, at least they're taking their spiritual lives seriously. That's a lot better than the other pagans and Gentiles in our world. And they also want to be separate from this world. They seem to be doing things that are trying to separate them from the world and also get them close with God. And Paul says, I get that. I get it. But it's still ridiculous. It's still useless. It still can't help you at all. It can't help you get any closer with God. And you know why? Because you know, no matter how bad the external pressures of the world are, there's still the internal pressure. No matter what's going on on the outside, there's a worse and far more crucial battle going on inside of you, and it's the flesh. There is this deep down problem with every single one of us that we naturally turn away from God. Another pastor named John Woodhouse had an excellent quote for this. He says, rules must at least be seen in perspective. Rules simply do not solve the problem of human living. That fallen nature, that self-indulgent nature, that God-ignoring nature, that pleasure-craving nature, that self-absorbed nature that we all know so well, that, pleasure, or that is what Paul simply calls the flesh. Therefore, rules cannot even begin to do for you what Christ has done for you. Paul is pointing out that there are two strategies to deal with sin. There's Christ and every other strategy out there. Every other strategy has a weird mix of things that seem wise and things that might be helpful and practices that have all sorts of benefits. But if they lack Christ, they're useless. And the false teacher's practices do seem wise, but they lack Christ. And if they lack Christ, they're focused on the self. And if they're focused on the self, they'll give you nothing. Again, another pastor, John Piper, he says this, because the self was never designed to satisfy the self and it was never meant to be self-sufficient, we have a problem. 
We are only images of God. We are not God. We are not the ultimate thing. So there will always be an emptiness in our soul that struggles to be satisfied with the resources of self and constantly needs others to prop up the self, which can never happen because the self was never designed to be that for the self. We are not ultimate, which means we will be looking for something to complete us. And if we don't have Christ, we will ultimately always go back to ourself. And that is a reality he's pointing out to then continue to say, Christ, Christ was that replacement to the self. Christ was that one who came in and dealt with the flesh. If you actually go back in Colossians, do this this weekend if you have time. Go back and see how Christ has dealt with the flesh. In Colossians chapter 2, 11, he says, Christ, through the circumcision, through the surgery of Christ, he put off the body of the flesh. Paul has already explained that Christ has dealt with that issue, and he dealt with it by his death. And that's how he begins Colossians 2.13. He says, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That part of you that couldn't perform uh, spiritual surgery on your own, Christ performed that surgery for you. He has done that. He has put off your sin. Though it's not permanently removed, he has replaced the greatest desire of your heart being serving yourself and replaced it with a desire to serve Christ because you know that Christ has completed you and is continuing to point that out for you. And the question you have when you recognize that reality is this, do you wanna live in that reality? Do you wanna to continue to be a Christian, but give into sin and lose the joy of your salvation and the assurance of your salvation and the joy of Christ completing and fulfilling your life and giving you those things that you want from the world, but you can't get it because you still worship yourself, and even you can't satisfy you. I can't satisfy me. Nobody can satisfy anyone, but Christ can satisfy all of them by taking them fo their focus off of themselves in this world through the circumcision of their heart and focusing them on Christ. The question you have from that point is really this, what is your strategy? If you recognize the glory and the beauty of Christ, what is your strategy to deal with your flesh? Even if you are saved, it is a problem. And there are all sorts of good things. But Paul, at least, before he gets into chapter 3, in just saying that we stop the indulgence of the flesh through the death of Christ, through that he actually points out at least two very quick and easy ways to begin a wise strategy for dealing with sin. These are basically Paul's two tips on stopping sin, and we'll expand on this as we go in chapter three. This is just two really quick things. Number one, aim at the heart. Number one, aim at the heart. You cannot aim at your practices. You cannot just change your behavior without looking at the motivation and the intention behind your behavior. If you want an awesome study on this, look at the book of Proverbs. The thing I love about Proverbs is it talks a lot about amazing strategies for dealing with sins through wisdom, but in the, the proverb writer, Solomon, and everyone else who wrote Proverbs, they never ever lose focus on the heart. No matter what strategies they have, they never lose focus on the heart. If you read Proverbs 7, it is an amazing strategy to deal with tempting sins. They're made as kind of a picture uh, called the adulteress. And the proverb writer pictures 
uh, a young man who is foolish walking and being tempted by the adulteress. And he has all sorts of wise strategies for avoiding her. He says, don't go on the road that you know leads to her house. Don't listen to her voice. Don't be seduced by the smells coming from her house or the food she's offering you or the lies that she's telling you. These are all strategies to avoid that. But he never, ever loses focus on the heart and how the heart is the main issue. He ends Proverbs 7.25 by saying, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. It is not just fixing your behavior. It is starting with your heart. And that's the second tip that Paul has. If you're going to start with your heart, then you have to start with Christ. You have to remember the passages in Colossians that are explaining how only Christ can save you from your own flesh and turn you towards him and the eternal relationship that comes from that. When Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians, the whole first chapters of his book are literally explaining this reality. He's explaining no matter how wise the world seems to be and no matter how much help they offer you, it's all garbage in comparison to the wisdom that only comes from Christ. He explains in 1 Corinthians 1.25, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It all goes back to Christ. He continues that in 1 Corinthians 1.30 when he says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. And he ends that in 1 Corinthians 2.5 by saying, your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And you know what, you guys know this. You know this because you've been with us together as we've been going through Colossians. So you hopefully remember what Paul has said in Colossians 2.3 when he said, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It all goes back to Christ. As you think about all of these realities, about this reality of your sin inside of you, of this reality of the world and its temptations, and of this ultimate reality of this spiritual war between Christ and every spiritual force, remember Christ is the solution to every single one of those problems. And I want to end this sermon by just pointing you to something that you need to remember is true with all of those things. If you take this seriously, if you love Christ and you recognize his goodness and his grace to you, you are still going to go out and you're still going to sin. But Christ will still be 100% pleased with you. And the more you recognize your obvious need for Christ, the more beautiful he is going to be to you and the more powerfully he's going to work in your life and the more he's going to take you away from the indulgence of your flesh and he's going to turn you to himself. I opened this sermon with a little bit of a ridiculous illustration, so I think we're going to end it with a little bit of a ridiculous illustration. And here it is. Most of you guys know that I have, in the last year or so, become obsessed with Chinese reality shows. I really enjoy them. Now, I have an illustration from one that I actually didn't watch, but Ashley showed me because she's been really liking this song, this Chinese song. By the way, you have no idea how terrible it is to be addicted to a song that you don't even know the words to, but that has been my life this year. Ashley really liked a song, and she found out that there was a singing competition where two people were singing the song. The way it works is that for a number of weeks, there are a number of contestants who are given a song, and the judges who are judging them, uh, they actually help teach them and help them perform the song. So a man and a woman were given a song. The judges train them how to sing the song and give them tips, and then they perform the song in front of a couple thousand people. Very intimidating. 
And Ashley showed me this clip of these two people singing this song. And as they sang, the girl began singing first, and she sang, and it's beautiful. I have no idea what she was saying, but it was beautiful, okay? And then the guy sings. He sings the first half of the verse, and he suddenly starts humming, and he realizes he forgot the words. In front of a thousand people and in front of all the judges, he gets down on his hands and knees, and in Chinese, as Ashley translated for me, he says, I'm so sorry, teachers. And he's like crying. You can only imagine the kind of shame and embarrassment from forgetting the lyrics to a song. And two really awesome, beautiful things happened in that moment. The first thing was that the girl competitor walked across the stage to him, picked him up, grabbed his hands, and started singing the song back to him and opening her mouth really wide to help her re uh, him remember the lyrics to the song. It was really awesome. But the second thing was, I think, even better. When they're done, the guy's still embarrassed because he forgot the lyrics to the song, and that worry got him all the way through this. Through, uh, that worry followed him through the whole song. But he gets to the end, and the first thing the judge said was this. Ashley, again, had to translate it for me. She said, that song was all about how you cannot go it alone and you need someone to help you. And even the fact that you messed up and that guy had to come and help you made the song even better. I love that. It's so cool. And that is really the reality that you need to walk in as you start trying to realize what a godly strategy for sin is as you walk down the road. You are going to still sin. And that is going to help you remember and recognize you are obviously in need. And it becomes more and more obvious that Christ is the only one that can help you. He will become more beautiful to you. And he will make your walk so much better. And he will help you recognize how much more and more worthy of worship he is. And that will bring glory to him. And if that is helpful, if Paul has been helping you through Colossians, then continue to think about it and read on it. And Paul is going to get specific in chapter 3 and 4 as he starts counseling through how Christ gives us a new strategy for how to deal with sin and ourselves. But that we will continue in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And you are so good even though we are so self-indulgent and sinful. Lord, we don't want to just simply pray to you as some kind of pity party. We don't want to just pretend that we're so humble. We want to genuinely recognize how desperately we need you. We want to recognize our sin, and we want it to break our hearts, not because it affects our lives, because it's not about us, but sin is against you, a God who created us in your image, the most amazing privilege in the entire world. You have given that to us, and we desecrate that every single day. Every breath that we breathe that does not go back to you brings a dishonor to you. But Lord, all of that you have wiped away through your son Christ. He has forgiven us all of our debt because of the cross. It has all been canceled, and it is still nailed upon the cross to this day. And that, by that same grace, Lord, that... Your son died on the cross for us. By that same grace, we are transformed. We are made alive with you. Our old self is dead, and we've been made alive in you. Let that be so amazing that it gives us new lenses to see our world. There is nothing that it can offer us. It can give us strategies. 
It can reveal to us shadows of the truth. It can do all sorts of things, Lord, but if it is absent of you, it is useless. We need you to navigate this world for us. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us to life lived well with you. And we need you to remind us of your grace. Though we fail, you are better. Even though we are blind, you have caused us to see and you are growing us to be more and more holy people until we see you face to face one day. Let that sustain us. Let that empower us. Let us be humble in your sight from the heart so that we may worship you rightly and we may enjoy this life, this life lived with you as life is meant to be lived. Let that be true for us through your power. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. All right, guys, so I think most of you know, but for those of you who don't know, uh, next week is retreat. Um, So if you're going to retreat, you'll be at retreat. Uh, If you're not at retreat, that's totally cool. You will have a great weekend in some way, I hope, next week. But next week, there obviously will not be roots. So we'll meet in two weeks, and we will be doing Colossians chapter 3. And so I hope that in the the next two weeks, as you kind of have that off time, read through Colossians and pray through Colossians and be reminded of those uh, different truths in Colossians. If something is confusing, go back to the CBC website and re-listen to the sermon and see if that can be helpful. Um, Or just like talk to your parents or talk to us as you have opportunities. But don't uh, get out of Colossians um, while we go through the study so that you can just keep being um, enriched by how awesome this book is. And so uh, with that, you guys can break off into your small groups, and we will see you back here somewhere around 9.30.